Hello, welcome to the Manual Handling Collective. I'm your host, Simone Hepburn. I'm a physio and manual handling educator, and I'm passionate about injury prevention. This is a podcast where I speak frankly with the brain's trust of manual handling and other amazing industry leaders in and around the occupational health and wellness community. You get to meet them, you get to be inspired, you get to learn from their stories, and you get to stay up to date with the latest and greatest in manual handling and wellness. So let's crack on. Today, we have Irish storyteller, occupational therapist, educator, and author, Aideen Gallagher on the show, and she's going to help us solve our manual handling problems and help us get it right. So Aideen's based in Sydney, Australia, and she's a founder and co-director of Risk Managed, where she consults as a manual handling advisor and educator to aged care and disability sectors. Uh, on top of her skill set, she's also quite the academic with several articles and an extensive education list. I see a Bachelor of Occupational Therapy, Masters of Occupational Health and Safety, Masters in Public Health and Postgrad Diploma in Academic Practice. Wow, that's a lot in there, uh, in that big brain of yours. So thanks for opening it up today and being part of the Big Brains Trust of Manual Handling. Welcome, Aideen. Thank you very much, Simone. Firstly, we're going to dive straight into your career journey. So I'm always curious about people working in manual handling and, and what's brought them to, to where they are. So your story seems like an interesting mix between Ireland and Australia and between mental health, occupational therapy and community manual handling. And then in there, I saw a mix of university lecturing to OT students. So... I'm curious about that, how, how that's come about and how your background in mental health has shaped what you do in your practice in manual handling. Yep, I'm, I'm, it's interesting. I'm always interested in how people ended up in moving and handling because I can tell you when I was seven, eating my cornflakes, I didn't say to my mom, <laughs> Mom, I want to I observe up. people being moved all day when they're naked. <laughs> so, yeah, um, and it's interesting as well when I was studying occupational therapy in Trinity in second year in college, one of my um, roommates was a fourth year physio and she was studying back pain in nurses. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, oh, my gosh, I can't imagine anything more boring. And look at me <laughs> now. I am. That's what my whole career has been. That's probably what I thought as a physio as well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I guess how did I get here? Um, so I qualified in 2001 from um, a degree in occupational therapy. And I decided to go into mental health OT. And I arrived in Sydney in 2003 um, after doing a backpack around Australia and um, I was looking for a job in mental health and on the first week of December I got a call from my dream job in first episode psychosis dealing with uh, young adults with first episode psychosis to say that I was not successful at getting the job and on that same day I got a call begging me to take off the job um, because I was on a locum list um, in moving and handling and I said to them I know nothing about this stuff um, and they offered to pay me Christmas holidays and <laughs> for a backpacker, the, uh, the um, what is it <laughs> in the state of mind I was in I said okay and I thought I'd last a week and I was there four and a half years wow. and and I guess you know you ask how my mental health 
shaped me you know the physical stuff in moving and handling is quite hard but what I was able to notice um, that a lot of my colleagues weren't noticing is that every time we're dealing with the moving and handling problem we're dealing with grief I knew that from my mental health experience a how to identify it and b what to do about it without being a grief counsellor um, mm. so I was able to address that with my clients and that's what allowed me to succeed mm. in this area of moving and handling because I feel uh, able to address the grief and by addressing the grief you can better solve the moving and handling problem. Nice nice I know you've got um, you've written quite a bit about that as well so a nice segue into your book which I have here which I have read so um, there's two books that you've written and uh, the first one The Manual Handling Revolution how health professionals can achieve creative solutions for people with disabilities and their caregivers. So what I liked about your book is that it's in these um, small, neat little chapters, which made it really easy in those bite-sized chunks to pick up. I'd read a chapter in a break and let it sit and then I'd go back and, and it was an easy one to pick up and put down and, and get through. So tell me, uh, apart from me, who else uh, do you sort of target the book at? And who do you think should be reading it? Yeah, I think any health professional who solves moving and handling problems. Um, I, I guess uh, when I, you know, when I went into this moving and handling area, I, I found that I was sometimes um, uh, solving or I guess dealing with mistakes that health professionals had made mm -hmm. when they did the best that they could in solving moving and handling problems. And, uh, you know, I, I taught uh, in the undergraduate occupational therapy degree for four years in uh, the National University of Ireland in Galway. And I was teaching OTs uh, as part of that. And I got to speak to them for two hours about the yeah. moving and handling space. Yeah. And these I people were leaving the, the, the sure. university with the badge of expert mm -hmm. on the multidisciplinary mm -hmm. team in the ones to go to to solve yeah. moving and handling yeah. problems. Yeah, so, I, know, I know exactly what you mean because I've been involved in my local university in the physio undergraduate program and it's the same in, in physio as occupational therapy. But just because they graduate with a certificate doesn't mean they're ready to solve these complex problems with complex patients. Absolutely, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I think they're all doing their best, right? Mm -hmm. But if you don't know the method of doing it, you create more problems than you solve. And that's what I found myself doing. Um, so it was interesting. You say I have a master's in uh, in uh, occupational health and safety. When I did this job for four years, I said, I'll do a master's in occupational health and safety to learn more about this. Um, but I ended up getting an exemption in the very topic I needed to know more about because I have my OT degree. And I was like, wait a minute, I haven't done that Enough but it's this that. massive assumption yes and I great. felt if it's happening to me then it's happening to everybody nice. else and we're never going to get any further in this industry I guess the difference between me and everyone else doing moving and handling is when I took that job in moving and handling I had two very very strong mentors who taught mm -hmm. me exactly yeah. what to do massive knowledge yeah. in uh, home care services in New South Wales it was there was Anne Adams there was um uh, Kylie Downs there was a lot of very good therapists around them all coming together to solve these problems so I just feel I got a one education yes so 
So mentors are fantastic, but how else, what other ideas have you got for people who are new starting health professionals um, or even maybe current practicing professionals to get more skills, learn more about, you know, equipment, equipment prescription, problem solving, what other things are out there? I know you've got a few up your sleeve. Yeah, I think, I think um, it's interesting. Uh, I think uh, equipment reps are a great resource for education and but I think it's the partnership between the health professional and the um, the equipment supplier um, both have knowledge to co- to bring that both together work in partnership to solve a problem but health professionals sometimes are afraid to talk to a rep because they feel sold to and reps I get the sense feel really disempowered because they probably know more, more about the equipment than the therapist coming to ask them. So yes. this kind of a bit of a standoff, but I believe yes. if we provide a way that everyone knows what their role is, everyone's very clear on that. There's yeah. it's you're doing this, I'm doing that. Mm. Uh, it can work beautifully together. Mm. Yeah. So the, that role differentiation you're saying is, you know, that the equipment uh, reps can explain how the equipment works, but the therapist is to apply that to the situation um, yeah yeah and I talk about it in my book you know this idea that uh, I talked to Mike Frey in in the UK about this you know and and he would have said that in the 1980s there was no solution to any problem you know everyone was having back injuries and suddenly this massive amount of equipment came on the Mm. scene and suddenly Mm. we've got this equipment monster that there's so many options out there that therapists don't have an idea where to go so what happens is that a rep will show a product and they'll start to tell the therapist why it's a great product. Mm-hmm. Uh, the therapist just needs to know how to use it. It's the therapist's role to give objective evaluation to that product. Yes. And they want to shut off the sales of the benefits of it. That's up to them to determine in terms of their client. So that's where I created this model that how do health professionals and uh, equipment suppliers work together? If the equipment supplier comes and just shows competence, their job is to show how to use Use the equipment. So the health professional has got competence. Mm -hmm. Then they step back and they allow the health professional to come to their own conclusion of the benefits of Mm -hmm. the equipment Mm because that's the health professional's job. Yes, that that I like the way you define those two roles and, and how they can work together, because really it should be. You know, we need them. They need us. We we should be able to get this right to to get the best yes. outcomes. Yes, yeah. and both everyone wants the same thing. Yes, you know, uh, an equipment rep wants to sell their product. Their product will not sell again unless it meaningfully solves a problem. Yes. they don't want the the uh, the wrong product solving the wrong problem because the product looks terrible (laughs) so everyone wants the same thing but there's a there seems to be a breakdown in trust yes between the two parties yes it did did, um i I remember when i first entered the manual hunting space it took me a while to to figure out and navigate that space but um yeah definitely the more i've dived in and and trusted the suppliers the, the more confident i've got in in my prescription as well yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, any other ways for professional development in the manual handling space? What else um, do you do? I guess. Um, what else would you recommend? The, first the Australian Association. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, what would you recommend for for new people rather than what do you do? What, what okay, do you I guess. Um, I mean, I'd find a 
I'd find a good mentor, right? I think this is what um, a lot of the students used to do. You know, people assume you've got to go and read loads of research articles mm. to learn, mm. right? But learning is a learning is a community. And so you go to the person who's read the research articles for them to tell you and help you interpret them yeah. until you learn how to do it yourself. Yes. So, you know, if I was to look up overhead hoist now on a journal list, I'll get so many articles, I won't even know where to start. Yeah. And so if a new grad is getting that, they get overwhelmed and disengaged from the activity. Mm -hmm. um, you know, just get a really good course to help mm. you from the beginning to learn how to do that. Mm. Um, you know, learn the basics of the equipment um, separate from the equipment reps, because you need yes. to have the language to be able to oh, yeah. know what you're asking for, know what you're talking mm -hmm. about. There is systems. This is all, you know, I used to love maths in school and physics. I never got to study physics, but I, I always with an interest in it. Equipment and moving and handling is all physics. It's not too late to go back and study physics. Yeah. Jane. Just, you know, add that to your list of qualifications. I'm, just, yeah, my, I'm, I'm looking forward to when my son is in, in, uh, in high school because he might do physics and I can just kind of read the book. Um, but yeah, it's, it's all physics. Mm. And so um, uh, just learning that physics from somebody who can decode that mm -hmm. for you, mm -hmm. that, that's what I would advise. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just look for some courses out there to help you to do yeah. that. And uh, you started saying something about the Australian Association of Manual Handling of People. Yeah, the, they have a conference that is really good. There's some, you know, uh, I, I remember go, talking to friends and they said, what did you do last week? And I said, I spent three days at a moving and handling conference for people with disabilities. And I was like, they were like, could you talk about that for three days? Yeah. Yes, you can. And it's quite, it's quite nice to go to a conference like that where everyone is on the same page as you with the same interest. That's exceptionally powerful. And mm -hmm. you learn so much there by uh, learning from people who are at a very high level in their game on that, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and that's very powerful as well. So that's another great group mm -hmm. to get involved in. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me about... Um some of the, the common mistakes or issues that you see with um, prescription of equipment and have you got any examples of like really juicy doozy things that you saw <laughs> go wrong? People love those. Um, uh, well, um, I guess um, I'll, I'll give you a basic one first on just overhead hoists or sorry, pro-base hoists that I see all the time, just in like, what are the basic problems that people, uh, uh, that they problems they see um there is so many overhead hoists that in the market or sorry floor base hoists excuse me um there is an assumption that every hoist is the same and so a hoist is put in place it's a little bit hard to do it solves what i call the load problem but doesn't solve the task demand problem there's too many little bits to it because the hoist is wrong and suddenly we get a second care worker in place because it's too bitty and hard but if they got the right hoist in place that took the task demands down, um, therefore it now becomes a one worker routine. Mm. So that's one of the biggest mistakes I see all the time. It's and I started running workshops on this in 2007. And I thought uh, I kind of would say this and nobody would listen. I'm delivering one on Friday again <laughs> and it's full. I cannot believe how people still don't know this basic stuff. And this is your... Um... 
is this your smart care for health professionals course? Yes. Okay. Yeah. This is an 18 week course for health professionals mm-hmm. that we go through Once the this prescription webinar. use and justification of all the equipment that you can use in moving and handling in terms of categories of equipment. Sounds fantastic. I'm going to put a few um, links in the show notes for listeners, things like um, your website and your courses and where to find your book and uh, your research and things like that. So that will be there if people have more questions about that. But you asked me about a a doozy, you know, it's, it's, it's just, it's interesting. Whenever I see a case um, and you go in and you see something that's strange you can never assume because you can you always have to understand the why someone has done something because there could be a very very genuine reason why they have done something mm-hmm. um but i saw a an overhead hoist recently i don't know how much was paid spent on this i think it could have been upward on $25,000 maybe more because there was a track going into the bathroom um, and two cutouts in from the bedroom and then into the bathroom. But the interesting part of this is that this was two people in a double bed and the track went um, uh, up. The person went up uh, on the, the inward side of the bed. They had to be hoisted over the second person in the bed to go to a track. And then the track went out into the bathroom. So, wow. you know, I was like... <laughs> How do I describe this in my report? And I described it as Parramatta Road. It's like it's like this traffic Sydney, jam. Is that a Sydney thing? <laughs> do you have to live in Sydney to know what Parramatta Road is like? Par- Par- Parramatta Road, I don't know. It's not a very good road to be on. If you're stuck on Parramatta Road, you may never get off it. Um, you know, these people needed the M1. And the really frustrating thing about it is the M1 is very possible in this environment, if they just put in an XY system Mm -hmm. that the person could go diagonal out. Um, And and this is a really interesting thing, the mistake I see making. People don't do the basics of an activity analysis, right? Mm -hmm. It is the Mm -hmm. basics, basics. You've got to do the journey of what the person goes through every single routine. They have to go to every single transfer they do across their day Mm -hmm. from when they get up in the morning to the evening. Once you know that, then you look at what can move to the hoist and what the hoist needs to move to. Mm-hmm. And, and in this situation, yes, this is a, you know, this is a heavy client. And yes, the shower commode chair is hard to move. But if we start getting efficient by pivoting the chair, the chair is actually very easy to move. And we don't need this big snake of a <laughs> mm. into the bathroom that is causing mm. all these problems. Because wow. once it's got a turntable, it keeps breaking down. Yeah. So now these two clients have two floor-based hoists sitting in the office in case. Wow. Yeah. Expensive. An expensive mistake. Expensive mistake. And so these aren't being used. There's no batteries on them. So the batteries go and suddenly wow. the floor-based hoists. Oh, it goes. Uh, yeah. So yeah. it's just so yeah. important, isn't it, to get it right? Like the expense plus the other things around quality of life and the impacts that flow on from there yeah because now these people have to go back to the ndis Mm -hmm. to argue why twenty five thousand, maybe thirty thousand dollars didn't solve their problem you know and uh yeah and that's an issue Mm -hmm. definitely Mm. 
Haynes Medical Australia are innately curious, solution-focused, and always keen to share expert insights on keeping staff and patients safe. That's why today's Manual Handling Collective podcast is proudly brought to you by Haynes Medical Australia. In your book also, I liked your creative risk management model. So I'd be really um, interested in your explanation of how that's different to what people know as the, you know, OHS risk management model and yeah, why the creative part, how does that, how does that look? Um, I guess, you know, the question is where did that come from, Mm -hmm. I guess, first. And, um, you know, I've got a background in mental health and just to explain, I, I used to lecture in mental health and I used to lecture on risk assessment Mm -hmm. and risk assessment, you know, helps you to get rid of danger. That is the goal of it, to eradicate danger, to make things as safe as possible. And in a mental health context, we did that by admitting people to hospital until they got well. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then they were discharged into the community. So that's going from danger to safety. But when the people go out into the community, they've got to go from safety to life. So they've got to start taking risks. So in, moving, in, uh, in mental health, what they do is they use risk assessment to verify what risks you can take. In the other direction, right? yeah. In the other direction. OHS is taking away the risk. Trying it's to taking away the risk. Whereas, and, and I know we're talking about different stuff here, but um, for me in, yes, safety is always important. You never compromise that. But sometimes we're so stuck on being afraid of deviation from safety that we never look at kind of the efficiency bit. And, you know, the the brakes on the hoist is a really big example of that. Brakes on, it's a de- brakes off. It's a debate that we get all the time, you know. And it, it's really interesting. When I asked you, brakes go on or off the hoist, people assume that is a safety question. Yep. It's not a safety question because the hoist is technically safe as a as an item in itself. If it's, you know, it's if it's on a slope, it's going to move off yeah. to the side, but right. who does transfers on a slope? <laughs> you know, it's going to, it's usually on level ground. So people make this decision about bricks on hoist or not based on safety. But if you reframe that, right, we have to make things safe. And, you know, I ask participants of the workshop, what is your reason for putting bricks on the hoist? And they're all afraid of this hoist tipping, mm. right? That's mm. the reason why they're so afraid of it tipping. And I remember doing a, we do a workshop where we, we you know, we, we try this out. And I remember one OT sitting in the corner of my workshop saying, I cannot look so because I'm so afraid of what's going to happen now. I cannot be a part of this, which just shows this fear mm. we have of moving and handling, which stops us from exploring what would happen if. Mm. And, and what's really interesting, when I started working and moving and handling, you know, I, I said in that interview on the 3rd of December, 2003, I have never seen a hoist before, okay? I, know, I have no idea, are you sure you want to hire me? I know nothing about these. And they're like, yes, we want to hire you because there was no one else to do it. I was just an OT with the pulse, right? And so uh, people would say to me, oh, bricks on the hoist. And I could never remember. So what I had to do is I had to go into the training room and go, what would happen if I need to understand why Mm. brakes on the hoist or not on the hoist. So I started looking at what happens if you put the brakes on the hoist off the chair, off the chair, on the hoist, 
on everything, off everything in a, in a safe Control. training environment. Mm. So you start getting to know the physics of equipment. Mm. And then I realized it's not about safety at all. This is about, tra- this is about positioning, mm-hmm. positioning from the front versus positioning on the back mm. versus the chair that's light versus heavy. And suddenly when you start exploring something and using risk management to go, let's give something a go, but safety is the it, let's control that nothing bad can happen, but let's see what happens. Yeah. Asking that question, yes. let's see what happens. We'll do it in a controlled environment. You know, what can happen? Yeah, but at least we'll to... know we're wrong, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, and that's a, what I mean. a way to innovate as well is just to push those boundaries a little bit and see what's at the edge. Yeah. And, and mm. it's really interesting. That is correct. That's the innovation. But I think as health professionals, we're just conditioned into this conservative risk management. Mm. That is important when the client is in front of you. Yes. You know, you cannot take risks that are negligent, right? Mm. But in a training environment where everything is controlled, you know, let's Mm. give it a go. Mm. (laughs) Like, you know, what would, how do people fall out of slings? Let's give it a go in training. Let's Mm. see Mm. what happens if you tip forward. And, you know, like what can happen somebody right you know and this is the things we're afraid to explore that I feel that we need to explore so that we go oh I get it yeah so I don't have to remember this rule I get it because I see it I get Mm. it because I feel felt it so that's what a lot we do a lot in the workshops what would happen if we put the sling on upside down yeah like what would happen (laughs) if you know and then everyone goes oh I get it now but they're just all because that's what they're afraid of yeah 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 yeah. You know, they're afraid of using the wrong sling with the hoist, but they don't know what it looks like mm. when that happens. Mm. And then mm. when you see it, you go, oh, my gosh, now I get it. Mm. Ah, sounds like <laughs> a great fun workshop. Uh, my other question I've got for you here is about your second book. So can you tell us a little bit about it? I know it's called Smart Care, one word, and the subtitles are How Income Hair Pro- how in-home care providers can mitigate risk, maximise their workforce and deliver quality care. And you co-authored that with your co-director at Risk Managed, Emma Small, another occupational therapist. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, so so it seems like the second book's directed more towards in-home carers, the first one more towards health professionals. Is that yes. correct? Yes, yep. so this is CEOs of in-home care providers, mm-hmm. kind of that C-suite and um, when, when is it out? And tell us a little bit about it. What can we look forward <laughs> it to? It just went to print yesterday. Mm. It just, yeah. So um, it should be out in the next four to six weeks. It should be in our hands, which is really exciting. How long does a book take from writing the first page to getting it to the shelf? Don't ask. Um, <laughs> 2020 just went out the window. It was supposed to be launched March last year. Yeah. But 2020 just clearly 2020. 2020, let's just move on. <laughs> But it, it, if you took out 2020, right, if you just yeah. pretend that didn't happen, it was just over a year. Wow. Yeah, it's a lot of it's a lot of work and you think you're finished and then you realize you ain't finished at all. But yeah, we got there. It's an endurance sport. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us a bit about it. So I guess, um, you know, we, why did we call it smart care? Uh, I, I really love the initiative in the UK, single handed care. Mm-hmm. I think it's really clever in what it has conveyed and what it has tried to solve I think sometimes it's misinterpreted for something that it isn't which is about trying to make care a one 
worker routine when that isn't always possible. And I think the single-handed care philosophy acknowledges that, right? But just when someone hears it for the first time with different uh, agendas, they can disengage from it because mm -hmm. it communicates something that it isn't. So we were kind of going, you know, like that has been in the UK for 10 years and how do we change the way that care is done in Australia and we felt that going down that same route we're going to be where the UK is in 10 years time so how can we make it different and Emma and I spent about I would say two years listening to people about what they want listening to clients listening to in-home care providers listening to carers listening to what all the speakers were saying and everyone wants a care routine that is safe for everybody, that's efficient in the use of resources, and that is quality. And so we were kind of going, what word conveys those three, those three things, which single-handed care does, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But we need a word that conveys that so everybody has something to gain from it. And everybody wants a smart routine everyone wants something that is smart. There's some, that word smart, I felt, could be conveyed. There's something in there for everybody. Mm. Um, the question is, why do we target in-home care providers? Um, they're a stakeholder in this, and they can sometimes be the hardest people to get on board with the health and safety agenda. You know, I, I think I think we've lost that health and safety battle in some ways because we keep talking about safety. Whereas, uh, you know, and uh, Mike Frey would talk about this as well, is that we've the health services have moved on to the client-centered agenda at the moment, right? The client has the power, mm -hmm. and rightly so. So anything we're talking about safety, the client isn't even in that space. Mm -hmm. You know, they don't mm -hmm. even, they, they, they can't get their head around that space. Mm -hmm. So we need to get their head around that space. So this book talks about, the need for the safety of the worker, but we all sell it in terms of what the client has to gain. Mm -hmm. So because the in-home care provider cares about the client. Mm -hmm. So we have pushed everything to arguing why health and safety is of benefit to client. the client mm -hmm. and therefore the in-home care provider and the icing on the cake is exactly. the care worker, not the other way sure. around. Oh, that makes sense. So, uh, when, did, when did you say it was coming out? It's just when it's the probably... Yeah. I mean, I thought it'd be out now, but it's uh, it's going to be another, I'd say, I'd say five weeks. Okay. It'll be, Focus. I'll have it here or Emma will have half yes. of them. We're getting half delivered to her, half delivered to me. So both of us can go. It did happen. <laughs> it's <laughs> this real. wasn't in our heads. <laughs> oh, very good. And that will be um, something people could access from your website, right? Yes. When we get our website done. Yes. <laughs> we have to get our website. Give Aideen updated. a little from... Well, you know. Yeah. Yes. From now. Excellent. So about May 2021, we'll start having a look, yeah? Would that yes, give you time? Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. I can commit to that. Fabulous. So my uh, last question is uh, trying to tap into your big brain about what you think the future of work in this space is going to look like and what kind of things you'd like to see more of, um, how, how we can grow. What are your thoughts around that? Mm, that's a big question. <laughs> um, I think for me, it's kind of tapping into that relationship between equipment providers and health professionals. Mm -hmm. I think there's a bit of a, a disconnect there. And I think we need to look, relook at the way we're doing that. 
And an example is conferences. Mm -hmm. You know, in the conference um, sphere, we have providers showing their wares out in the in the exhibition hall, mm -hmm. and the solving of problems happens in the sessions. Mm. There is kind of this, and you uh, yeah you move around to different stations looking yes. at individual piece of equipment separately. Yes, you just look at it and a lot of OTs don't know what to do with that. Mm. They don't know how like to, how to play with it and what, what does that mean? What does this mean? You know, oh, the color is nice. They don't know how to engage with it objectively so that they come away going that would solve X problem. And I know why and I know why it might, why it might be different to mm. another solution okay. there. Mm. They don't get to compare them. Yeah, I think the comparing piece would be interesting. If we could play yeah. with a few pieces at the same time with someone on a bed and yeah, yeah. And, and I think, yeah, yeah. And I think that two things need to happen at that. It's like, it's a bit like wine tasting, you know, you can't taste wine by itself nothing the way you taste wine. Mm. Apparently there's mm. nothing to compare it to. Mm. And that's how you mm. taste wine is you, you, you taste it in comparison. Mm. It's the same with equipment. And it doesn't matter what your comparison is. It just needs to be a comparison. So a little bit like a mini research study. Mm. So why don't we in conferences flip it that we have sessions that are involved with solving certain transfer problems because there's only eight of them, right? There's only in the home care environment, mm. there's only eight transfers That's that you can possibly do. Um, and again, someone could argue there's more than that, but just in a general day, mm. the general routine everyone does from getting out of bed to uh, um, going to bed at night, you know, there's mm. eight transfers that you would do. And um, why not just tackle each one of them? And someone is convening this with a question for people to answer. That's mm. just one small question, but they use the equipment to see how it answers that question. Mm. Oh, I like that idea. Well, keep yeah. it on, the, on your radar, Aideen. I'd love to see that um, idea come to life at a conference. I'd be very interested. Yeah, I think so. I mean, yeah, let's let's see. I mean, there's, there's, you know, with anything, there could be a reason why that hasn't happened mm. already, right? Mm. And it's just about, mm. again, what would that look like? What are the risks with that? And try mm. and mitigate the risks That's and enhance work. the positives. So you've also been to the um, the American Safe Patient Handling Conference, sorry, the International Safe Patient Handling yes. Conference in America. H how do they do things differently in, in regards to equipment over there? Um, well, I came to speak at that conference about in-home care and I, I stood up on the stage to speak about it and everyone went, excuse me? <laughs> I was like, I'm talking about in-home care. Oh, we don't have that here. So I was just flabbergasted that there is no community. Really? There's just, I don't know. I mean, I, do wow. people with disabilities live in the in America? There was just no, there was just no, uh, there was no. So just community. the family members are doing. Just care. the family members are doing it. Yeah. So they thought it was, I got the sense they couldn't even engage with it because it was just so far off what mm, happens at the moment, models, you know, yeah. and, and it's interesting uh, you know, I, I'm Irish, uh, clearly, and I've moved to Australia. And I think when you live in a country that does something well, you always find holes in what you're doing. It's only when you go somewhere else that you realize how well we do things. Mm. And um, yeah, that was a, uh, a lesson to me in that. It was just, I, 
I found that just overwhelming what that might be like um the yeah families and, care and cares yeah and cares, cares and just mm. even the health costs because mm. you know like you can't choose to go to the toilet you just have to go so if you've got a disability you have to do it it's yeah. as simple as that it's not something that is a it is it, it is a what I call in the book a need activity of daily living you can't get away from it you know you can mm. yeah wow well, you have blown my mind today, Adina. I knew you'd have some good things to uh, to share with the manual handling community. So thank you so much for your time. And uh, I love listening to Aideen today with her gorgeous Irish accent. There are so many passionate people in our manual handling community who really motivate me to keep trying to do better. And she's definitely inspired me to firstly not waste $30,000 on the wrong equipment, but also to be a bit more open to collaborating with different equipment suppliers. So I hope she's inspired you too. You have been listening to the Manual Handling Collective podcast. If you're only listening through audio, we've also filmed this episode. If you want to see a little extra, see the link in the show notes. Subscribe to stay notified of future episodes, like, share, comment, and get in touch to hear more of what you want. If you know a guest who'd be a great fit for the show, just let me know.